0: As Toni Morrison has put it, the destiny of the 21st century will be shaped by the possibility or collapse of a shareable world. Welcome to our podcast, where we explore the history, theory and practice of democratic socialism with our guide, Big Mike. What can we learn from the past to help us create a better, more shareable world in the future? Welcome back, everybody, to A Shareable World. We're once again here with Big Mike. Hello, Big Mike. Hi. <laughs> and we're, we're, um, we're on a roll. We've been looking first at the uh, religious tradition in the West as it relates to, to um, imagining alternative communities, alternative society. Um, and then we started the philosophical tradition, Looked a lot at, at Plato and then that last episode, uh, Thomas More.
1: I think it would, it would probably be more accurate to say that in the earlier period, in the Greek, the biblical, the Greek, medieval period, uh, people were imagining not so much alternative societies, mm. but good societies. Right. And, and the reason I want to make that distinction at this moment is because I think we're now going to talk today about the, a point at which the focus of the imagination turns from, indeed, from thinking of a good society to thinking of an alternative society. Right. In other words, the, the reason I make that distinction is that it is also this period now that we're getting into the uh, 16th and 17th century and on, in which a very powerful form of social criticism develops in support of the power structures that exist as opposed to against the power structures that exist. So you you begin to get... Uh, whereas in, in, the, in the earlier period, you had all these critiques. We talked about them. You know, it Thomas yeah. More and so forth. Uh, these critiques of the power structure... But the power structure itself tended to rest on a few primary assumptions, such as, for example, the divine right of kings. Right. And uh, people wrote about the divine right of kings, but you didn't, you didn't engage in the imaginative act of, a, of creating another society yes. in order to critique the idea of the divine right of kings. It was a given. Right. No one goes off on a journey and yes. finds a another utopia yeah. to prove. But in this period, it changes now. In this period, we're going to see that that the European thinkers become incredibly aware of two things that maybe they were less aware of before.
0: Can I just—this uh, yeah. actually reminds me of something I thought about last time that I didn't ask you about that I think is related to this. That Because at one point, maybe a couple discussions ago— you talked about the twin the twin birth of socialism and capitalism right. as so two things coming into our way of thinking at the same time, but then we went back in history and looked at some of these things in the past, and maybe this what you just said is one way to explain it that in the past, before the modern period, it was a it was a call to do better. The prophet would show yeah, up exactly. and say, yeah we can do better than this Precisely. but then in the modern period it's what are we going to do yeah.
1: all these things that have been we've been talking about and I'll mention a couple again this morning all these things that we've been talking about are not yet socialism yeah right there are elements that will go into into a socialist system of thought but they're not yet socialism and I think that's very important to keep in mind uh, so that's why I just I try to distinguish between the the critical thought Mm -hmm. uh, of of the earlier periods and socialism itself as a as an analytical tool right as a as as a as very systematic which does come up along with the rise of capitalism i think that's just the point okay good so i want to i want to mention very quickly by way of illustrating this transition um a couple of people a couple of guys uh, one of whom is, um, the author, his name was Andrea, and he, he wrote a a book, again, one of these travel books, a place called Christianopolis. But what's interesting about his writing, he, he died in 1651, so you, he is already moving into this period when capitalism is beginning to become apparent. Remember that that Adam Smith, who will describe capitalism, mm-hmm. 1775, The Wealth of the Nations, so um So this is the period when people are beginning to see that this new system is coming into existence. And one of the things that Andrea does and, and emphasizes very strongly uh, is this concept of production. He's very concerned about production. Uh, and in this uh, in this uh, utopian world that he creates, um, he, he, production is thoroughly organized, And more than being organized, it's planned. And this is now the most, again, I said earlier, some of these strains that will be part of socialism begin to appear. Uh So it's organized. He says that those in charge know ahead of time what is thoroughly organized and know ahead of time what is to be made, in what quantity, and of what form. And they inform the mechanics of those items. So that's a plan. If the the supply of material uh, in the work booth, in the workshop, is sufficient, the workmen are permitted to indulge and give free play to their creative genius. No one has any money, and no one can be superior to the other in the amount of riches owned, since the advantage is rather one of power and genius. So here you get two elements, one element that I... Suggested last time, the universality, the commonality of knowledge, as opposed to money and gold, etc. And the other, which is now very interesting, the idea of a planned economy. They they knew. Remember, we we spoke about Francis Bacon and the importance of the new science of measurement of mm-hmm. of statistics and so forth. So along comes this guy, and he's applying these ideas to the to the concept of utopia. A good world will be one in which the economy, economic production, is planned. So most people don't read that book. By the way, it's, it's uh, most people most people don't read any of this literature <laughs> anymore. But uh, I'd but never it, heard of it. But it's an important uh, point to make. And the second person I want to make is um, uh, about a book called City of the Sun by Campanella. Uh, who was born in 1568? Uh, Again, more or less in the same same period, um, and is a much better known book actually than uh, Christianopolis. And he also pushes very strongly on production, and also on distribution, and he makes it very clear that the, uh, the, the best uh, world will be one in which people will contribute as much as they can and receive what they need. But he goes a step further. He brings to this t- this conversation uh, what I would call sociology, an element of sociology. One of the things that he is very aware of is that the society impinges upon the family. And he raises the family as, a, as an issue. Um he says the family needs to be reformed huh. so his idea of communism of this of this world that the people have been building up on this idea of, of planned production which allows for plenty for a sufficiency of goods uh, he argues that, that communism even has to affect family relations, communism as he understood it at the time and that that, that, that children should be free, they should not be possessed by their parents, children are not property, uh, and that um, that families themselves should not suffer from inequality of income with regard to other families. It's not just individuals mm. but families as well. Uh, and picking up on what Andrea said in, in Christianopolis, he also argues very strongly that a tremendous emphasis should be placed on production and on the producers. So while there are no slaves in his society, uh, honor is due to those who produce. Not to, those, not to officials or anybody else, but to those who produce. And that's the most important thing. And then he's, he's, he says some, some things that sound very, very out of time for us. On the walls of his uh, ideal village, ideal town, he has paintings which are intended to be instructive. He understands that people become educated not just through listening to books being read to them, mm. which was, of course, the primary form of education or of discussion, but also through looking and seeing. And so he has a, a more a, a multidimensional view of education. Visual education is relatively late. From our perspective, but here he was in the in the 16th century already talking about about visual education and learning. For him, again, he emphasizes this point of view of learning as the as the uh, the commonwealth, not 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 property.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's so. Those people, the people we've been talking about up to now. Um, are facing a world in which private property, as we understand it today, is becoming entrenched. Mm -hmm. Remember that, as we said, that private property was something quite different in the earlier period. People had use of property, but property was not something that you could keep and was legally uh, protected from the state or from your overlord uh-huh. Right, You had the right to use that property, which is not quite the same thing as possessing private property. But with the arrival of capitalism, with the development of capitalism, property itself, as we understand it, becomes a real force. And it's at this point that you begin to get the emergence of a school of thought, which is intended to defend property rather than criticize it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that, right. we begin, we'll, as we'll see, we begin to get people thinking more systemically about a criticism, not just dreams of a better world, but systemic analysis and systemic uh, construction of alternative societies. So obviously the most important, and to this day extremely important in our contemporary thinking, uh, the most important uh, indication of the growth of private property is the appearance of a political theory, a political philosophy that would justify and tolerate, not just tolerate, would justify and legitimate private property in and of itself. And that, of course, is what we now call the social contract theory. Hmm. So the idea of a social contract, and I'll come to that in a moment, the idea of a social contract uh, starts with Grotius. Grotius was who, who lives from 1583 to 1645, and was a is perhaps better known uh, as a what today we would call an international legal theorist. Um, but it's elaborated by uh, Thomas Hobbes, who lives just a few years later and longer than Grotius. So Hobbes' thesis grows out of What we have been talking about until now. Hobbes grants that communism existed, the kind of communism that was ideal for the social critics, for the utopians. Um, But Hobbes locates it as a period in the development of society, instead of it being another way of living. He locates it as a period in the development of society, namely when man lived in the state of nature,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's a, an incredibly important um, difference, and I would even suggest that maybe this is one of the first instances in which we have a kind of philosophy of history emerging when people are beginning yeah. to understand that that um, not all society is ever present; that you have. Other periods of society that are different from today, not just politically, but also structurally and socially. So, man is communism exists in the state of nature, but human beings are basically not good. They're evil. They want power. They want possession. They lust for power, and the result of that lust for power, for acquisition. In our modern world, the Ayn Rand kind <laughs> right. of thinking, right, uh, is the war of all against all. So the uh, the, the the flip side of of, of man in the in in, the, in in the state of nature is that we're constantly doing battle in the state of nature. So it may be natural in that right. sense, but that doesn't mean nature is is good. And here again is an extremely important tipping point. There's something wrong in the state of nature if we're to be truly human, right? And and therefore, to overcome these things, uh, uh, Hobbes concocts a myth, and it is a myth uh, to uh, to, to base uh, his theories on. And he says that people came together to discuss what to do about this because they could not tolerate this war of all against all. And they arrive at the conclusion that they will surrender some of their freedom in the state of nature in order to get the protection they need to survive. So that's the contract. I'm willing to surrender X in order to get Y. Now, that's an extremely important idea because that then becomes a legalistic and a mythological legalistic, but nonetheless, a legalistic idea and it also becomes a historical idea from which you can devolve more contemporary ideas, more systemic sociological mm-hmm. and political ideas. So then that leads to the next question, and that is, to whom do we surrender that amount of freedom that we have to surrender in order to achieve? Right. And the answer, of course, is the state. Mm-hmm. So this then marks the beginnings of the idea of the state not as an instrument of God to morally rule humankind, um, but indeed as a a collective activity to control us. Right. And that's quite a remarkable idea. That's very different from the Roman Empire, and it's very different from the kingdom of King David let's say Yeah. this is now the state right. and of course eventually it's going to be written about and the, the word Leviathan will be attached to it right the, the idea of the state as a huge instrument capable of wielding police power and of yeah. ordering our lives yeah. in such a way as to protect us from the war of all against right. all
0: you know, I just want to remind, remind people that um, this theorizing is it is uh, in response to a shifting social order that the divine right well, of kings within Christendom is breaking down. It's breaking down And so and
1: you're getting the emergence now at this very time of a new class yeah. of, a, of, the, of the merchant class uh, of, the, of what we today would, would call the capitalist class. right. It's not quite the capitalist class because they they are not yet making money out of money. That's another mm-hmm. subject we'll come to in the a later a later point but there's certainly a new class seeking for a way to justify power yeah. in their image yes. yep
0: yep and and
1: that we have to understand and to so the the
0: strategy here with hobbes is to the 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 creation of the myth is by telling a just so story about the past that that we find ourselves in a state of nature
1: Pre-Christendom. Yeah, it, in, right, in, it's in, a story. So it. uh, yeah. you know, again, remember, this is a period of discovery, of the age of discovery. So mm. they go to the Americas, and, yeah. and they see the what today we call the First Nations, or whatever term you want to use, uh, living very close to nature. They have a, yeah. especially in the North America, not so much in, in what today we call Latin America, but... Living uh, a, a kind of idyllic life, the noble savage, mm. all yeah. of that type of thing. Yeah. Um, the latest expression, what was the name of that movie? Uh, this movie of this Hottentot who discovered a Coke bottle.
0: Oh, boy. It's been what? a while since You remember that, that came movie? Out. Yes.
1: Um, I want everybody to see it. Gods must be crazy. The gods must be crazy. So this uh, South African is piloting a plane and he's drinking a coke and he throws the bottle down and lands in a community of people living in a state of nature Mm. right and it's the adventure of there's something wrong here this the the whole point about the movie is that this is a manufactured object which has dropped from the skies it's got to be put back somewhere otherwise nature is not going to sustain itself it's going to break up right right it's it's, a, it's really a very wonderful and interesting movie, and I recommend it for everybody to see. So then the question is, once we've got this idea established of the state and of, uh, of this uh, social contract in which we all surrender some of our freedom in order to live with less danger in our lives, then comes the necessity to develop the theory behind it, and and this is very much done with John Locke, mm-hmm. and John Locke, who lives from, he dies in 1704, so he's really getting up there now, we're getting up closer and closer to the first books on capitalism, and um, uh, to the American experiment, and, and to lots of other things going on. And the question is, how do you justify this new society? What is the, how do we explain to ourselves this new society that's emerging, this new world that is emerging? And Locke, in my view, is um, is noted um, mainly for development of the labor theory of value, which is going to become extremely important uh, in uh, when Marx appears on the scene and begins to provide us with a He and his immediate antecedents provide us with a theory explaining our economic behavior. So Locke disagrees with Hobbes, uh, and he suggests that in the state of nature, when I harvested, I didn't harvest because I didn't plant, when I picked a banana off the tree or harpooned a fish from the river, that was not communism. That was my taking hold of a a piece of nature and taking possession of it. Mm-hmm. It's very, it, it's it's not the opposite of the idea of the state of nature, especially if I think of the state of nature as also a kind of level of of uh, production development, right? When when all you really needed was to dance among the vineyards or among the trees in the forest and pick fruit. I mean, obviously, we know that didn't happen. But, but Locke is arguing that when I pulled that banana off the banana tree, it was my banana. And indeed, one could even go further and add on to Locke a little bit and say, well, indeed, since I knew that if I didn't eat it, I'd die. Let's say I lived in a world where there were only bananas, and if I didn't <laughs> eat that banana, I'd go hungry. That even increased my sense of possession over that banana. What is it that made that banana mine? The fact that I reached out and pulled it off the tree. I invested, and here's the beginning of the concept of the labor theory of value. I invested my energy in pulling that banana off the tree. And the the banana on the tree had no value whatsoever. But when I pull it off the tree, it does have value. It becomes food. Now, the banana on the on the tree is not food. Mm-hmm. It's just a banana on a tree, a kind of strange-looking thing. But when I pull it off, it becomes something different. It becomes food. The difference between the banana on the tree and the banana in my hand and in my mouth is the investment of my labor in uh-huh. plucking it all through. All right. it. That's an extremely important point for things. That, so... What what, what Locke is saying is that in the state of nature, nothing has value, period. And that's a very interesting concept because we, of course, um, don't think that way. Uh, We find that things in the state of nature, for example, I'm stumbling along in the middle of Northern California, and I just happened to discover a gold mine. Uh, no one's ever touched it before. It's in the state of nature. Well, I'm going to pay a lot of money for the right to dig it out, not as much money as somebody else might want to get. <laughs> but the point is, in our, in our view, the material quality of the state of nature invests it with, with value. But from Locke's point of view, it's the in, the investment of human labor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an extremely important distinction to make. So things in the state of nature have no value, Then the question is, well, how much labor has to be invested for it to to have value? And that also then opens up uh, a lot of very interesting questions. Uh, How much labor does it take to pluck a banana as opposed to how much labor does it take to pick strawberries? Right Now, the truth is, and I've never picked bananas, but I picked strawberries. Picking strawberries <laughs> is extremely difficult yep, labor. Sourderic. You have to bend over and whatnot. Bananas just lift up, right? But that opens up the whole question of trying to explain differentials in price. Mm-hmm. And we don't yet have a developed market theory. That's not going mm-hmm. to come until a little bit of labor. So at one point, uh, Locke suggests that that um, labor invested in, using my example of plucking the... Plucking the um, The banana, Uh, to pluck a banana, I invest nine times the value of the banana in plucking it. It's an arbitrary figure, but that's what he suggests. That helps me to account for market sales and so forth. And it is a very primitive, very, very primitive idea. But the, the primary thing is that labor is the source of value and labor is the source, and this is really important, A source of property. That private property starts with the assumption that it is mine because I've invested my labor in it. And this will become a major theme in socialist thought in the 19th century and right up until today. Mm. Locke didn't carry it too far, but it was extremely important that he thinks about it. Part of socialist thought in what way? Well, because... What is what is Marx will get when we get to Marx? We'll talk about alienation, mm-hmm. and what is alienating? What is it that's, that I, that is alienated? Well, I have invested my labor in making that pot. Right, right. That pot is mine, but you take the value of that mm, pot. Right. You don't let me have it. Yeah. But the fact is, I have possession of that pot. So, at the heart of the Marxist analysis of alienation is the idea that it, that property is a consequence, private property. Is the consequence of the investment of my labor in right, something, right. and you steal it because you're the capitalist? Yeah,
0: okay, right.
1: So eventually, as we'll talk about next time, because we won't be able to today probably, Proudhon is going to write a book and he's going to argue that property is theft. Mm-hmm, right. So that you you're taking that pot which I made and selling it on yeah, the market and only yeah. giving me ten cents and you're selling it for a dollar, right? Yeah. That's theft of my property. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I so so that argument about how labor labor mixes with nature becomes important to socialists but but to be clear Locke is also trying to carve out a new way of thinking about power for a certain class yes. because yeah. right. these property makers are going to be are going to be the political right.
1: he's trying to provide legitimacy for the new right.
0: class right which so it's, which is to be clear is not everybody that there are there are people who it's, it's by mixing okay. their labor create great right. well, property. Yeah, so this is then, going to, yeah. is
1: then going to open up the question of what is what is work. Yeah. Today we have reached what, with all due respect to my, economist colleagues, is the in my opinion reductio ad absurdum of this idea, because we we are um, we tend to argue these days that everything is work. So that even the rich capitalist sitting in a, <laughs> right. high up in a bank building in New York, yeah, just r- reaping the, yeah. the 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 a field of gold coins, that he is investing his labor uh-huh. in, that. and he's taking risk that, that the investment of that the risk factor is equal to the labor factor, right. et cetera. Right. I mean, this mm-hmm. really is a, we we have carried this argument. To a rather yes. ridiculous extent. Yeah, one of the one of the reasons, one of the ways we can see that this is a, this argument, was not accepted. The, the present argument was not accepted earlier, was that in the seventeenth century. Eighteenth century, you begin to get, revolts taking place. You begin to get social movements taking place, which. Um, are based upon this idea that my property is what I invest my labor in and you didn't invest your labor in it, therefore it's not your property, it's mine. So one of the best examples uh, is a guy named Gerald Winstanley who lived from uh, 1609 to 1676 and um, he put. he was very much involved with Oliver Cromwell and who was very anti-monarchical and anti the idea of, of, the, um, of, uh, of, the, uh, of God as the ruler of the world, right? He didn't believe in the divine right of kings at all. Uh, and Winstanley Lee is arguing very strongly that labor is the source of value, and he says he, he, he composes what he calls the law of righteousness— in which he says that there will be no buying and selling of the earth nor of the fruits thereof if nobody has invested their effort in it. So I cannot simply claim that field over there and sell it to you according to his idea of what is right and wrong. I must actually plow that field and and Mm -hmm. sow that field for me to have the right to sell it to you. So from this came a very interesting movement called the diggers movement, Mm -hmm. diggers utopia. The diggers were people who went around, who actually understood this and actually believed in all of this and went around digging up (laughs) hills here and there, Mm -hmm. not because really they were uh, planning to use these hills to grow. Uh, trees but they're digging up these hills to demonstrate that the, that to the worker owes is owed this the pro, the, the crop uh-huh. it's a communist idea bolshevik mm-hmm. idea if you get to the 20th century right that to the worker is owned owed the fruit of his or her work so they went around digging things up in this Became quite disruptive because they would often go on some lord's property and start digging <laughs> up. Right. It was the act of digging, of investing uh, labor uh-huh. in, the, in the ground, a very symbolic act, but with, with tremendous power uh, behind it. Uh. So I, I think that, that these are all signs of the beginning emergence of, as I said, of capitalism and what will quickly become, uh, um, become socialism. And again, they're beginning to become very much aware of the idea that um, political power rests upon economic power. Uh-huh. That's very important. Right. Yes. Now, one more point I'd like to make, uh, at least one more in this regard, is the emergence of another idea, which is a harbinger of modernity. Um, a man named Peter Chamberlain, who died in 1683, um, is very concerned with how do we manage the wealth of the society. Mind you, these people, notice, have come along and they've been talking about uh, to the producer, owes, is owned, owed the, the, the fruit of his work, and uh, people should produce enough and take what they need. Et so, but from Peter Chamberlain is raising the question of how do we manage it? So you begin to get this question that if you're going to abolish poverty through communism with a small c for those days, you're going to have to manage it it in some Mm. way. That's something that, say, the earlier people didn't talk about. Mm. Thomas More didn't talk about management. He said, well, there will be these people who will do such and so. But the theory of management didn't develop. So Peter Chamberlain proposes, at the end of the 17th century, uh, the nationalization of production. Now, you've got the state beginning to emerge as a power, uh, and and Peter Chamberlain is saying what we need to have is nationalized production because you can't plan production if it's not nationalized it all has to be brought together under one administration how are we going to support that how are we going to fund that we're going to fund it and he comes up with this idea we're going to establish a national bank hmm. I mean that's a phenomenal thing to talk about in the in the 1680s and 1690s, uh-huh. we will fund a national bank, which will uh, take in um, uh, capital from various investors, and we will invest it in the nationalized process of production. Right. Uh, and um, in addition to that, the workers need tools. Now you cannot expect the workers to buy their own tools. These are people just emerging from poverty. We want to bring them out of poverty. Poverty. Therefore, the nationalized industry, which is the state, will use the capital that the national bank will collect to buy the tools and build the factories where the workers can work. So here is a remarkable development which separates um, production from property, from private property, huh. and that, to me, is is also, as I said, a, a great leap forward. Uh, we are wedded to the idea that economic production is, involves private property, mm-hmm. uh, but Peter Chamberlain in the 1680s, 1690s, is already coming along and saying, "No, there's no huh. reasonable relationship there." Right. And in fact, if we're really going to accomplish our social ends, then we have to deal with the issue of management and and institutional structures. So that was a
0: that was a proposal, or that was something yeah, that, no, was, no, that att- was a proposal.
1: Attempted. He wrote a. He he writes uh, variously a, a book called The Poor Man's Advocate and various other <laughs> writings in which he proposes this kind of thing. Um, and he is a, he's a Christian, you know. He's, he 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 really does. He says at one point, and this again is, is the, the non-Catholic Christianity being the being the uh, place to which social criticism fled. Uh-huh. Remember as the church itself becomes more and more um, as the church divides between the Catholics and the Protestants and the Protestants are those who to some extent particularly in the left-wing Protestants are uh, non-establishment people you get these sects fleeing to the to the um, to the uh, nonconformist sects, they're they're very, very inspired by Christian, as we'll see. So were the British nineteenth-century mm-hmm. socialists and so forth. So um, he says, "Let no man." Here's Chamberlain. Uh, let no man say that men were poor because they were unworthy. Some of the greatest apostles, also Christ and the apostles, were poor. Besides, the poor would not be poor if the rich were honest. So as to let the poor have their own, the riches of the rich are oftentimes but trophies of their dishonesty, mm. of having robbed the poor or cousined the commonwealth. So property is theft. That, he hasn't say it yet. Proudhon will say it mm. 200, 200 years later, 150 years later. But he's already got that idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that a is that a, an, an end of an arc? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Because next time I want to start talking about the French Revolution and how it radically changes everything. So,
0: can, I just want to ask about because I'm just thinking about um. I mean, we're going to trace the many ways these things get carried forward, but I'm just looking at this way back with Hobbes and the um, not just the state of nature story, but this assumption that. People are basically not good.
1: <laughs> well, it that's does, the Christian—that's the Christian idea. Well,
0: we're, yeah, to some extent.
1: But no, I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, you can't—you can't. You can't yield the lily. Look, I mean the. Well, man the Christian is, story is. is oh, the, but the, we, we can
0: be reformed.
1: You can be well, saved. Whereas
0: I think Hobbes—I think the legacy of Hobbes is we're basically nasty, and society can help protect us from that nastiness to some uh, measure.
1: You're you're making a distinction. You're making you're you're saying something very interesting and making a distinction that I, I think would respond to in this way. Um, maybe maybe we are basically nasty sons of bitches. That's human nature, but we are nasty as a Christian, which I'm not. God knows, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I would say, well, the reason why we're basically nasty sons of bitches is because of original sin, right? All right. So then, society is a story uh, of redemption. We can only redeem ourselves mm-hmm. through society. So the to say that Hobbes is completely secular or that Hobbes denies the Christian uh perspective may be true on the surface but the structure of hobbes's story right the the, the infrastructure of hobbes's story is still the christian story because it is only through for example we sit down and we agree <clears throat> that yeah the social contract is the beginning of salvation
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense and i i, I don't even necessarily want to argue about what dependency it has on the Christian story or not, but just in terms of do people walk around now? When, so when we think about our problems, to what degree are we relying on some notion of what it is to be human at some basic level? And I think for a lot of conservative types, we, we are, we have these selfish predispositions that are natural and that are not going to go away, and society therefore should be structured in a way to make right. use yeah. of them. Or you have a completely different view, which is that however we 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 show up on Earth, it's the job of society to acculturate people to a a goodness that is already there in some sense.
1: Well, I think there's a third position. Let me rephrase what you just said. And we'll argue about this as time goes on. <laughs> I would agree that the conservative position would tend to see man, human beings, as having a nature that is faulted, Mm -hmm. whether it's from original sin or from just because we're nasty sons of bitches, period. Liberals, I underline that many times, (laughs) want to believe that human beings are basically good, and that if you... Have the freedom to express yourself, um, untrammeled by the controls that the conservatives want to put on our daily behavior, mm-hmm. uh, or for that matter, on various other matters. Then the goodness in in humankind will, right, that is that is our nature will emerge. In my thinking, and we'll we'll discuss this because I think Marx and his followers are. Um, need to be rethought in this regard in my thinking socialists would should argue and I will try to argue when we get there that there's no such thing as human nature to begin with and therefore we are truly free to create society as we want to create it
0: Mm -hmm. truly free in other
1: words no one is born a criminal we're educated into being criminals Mm
0: -hmm. yep or educated into being... Or educated into being good people. Good people. Either way.
1: Right. And you may even be educated into being, you know, that, that wonderful literary figure, the you know, the, the saintly thief. The saintly Robin thief. Robin Hood. Oh, right. Robin Hood represents the... Right? He, he, he acts in ways that the ruling class mm-hmm. doesn't like. He has lust for Maid Marian. <laughs> right, <laughs> you can you can deconstruct the Robin Hood story and, and, and get at this right. issue very it's complicated, nicely. Complicated, as they say. Yes. Yeah, it's not. It is a complicated story. It isn't the simple story we tell our children. But I think that this question of what is human nature is very, very important. Mm-hmm.
0: As as if nothing else, something to constantly be thought about.
1: Well, also acted upon. And, uh-huh. Also acted upon you know if i'm this is if i assume no particular quality that is a that is human nature then that will lead me in one but not necessarily another direction with regard to conceptualizing an educational system mm-hmm. and in fact pedagogy itself how do i want to bring out Right So yeah, so right. if you think about it, a lot yeah. of the progressive schools that were so au courant in the 1920s and '30s and on up to the 1960s, were all about if the kids are just not caught up in the structure of, of classroom work, yeah, they can run around free and they'll learn, right. right? They'll yeah. just learn to be good human beings, because that's what they naturally are.-huh. So I, I think this is a very practical yeah. debate, yeah, in sure. other words.
0: What what would you what would you what would you uh, attribute your own your personal sense of justice and fairness to oh from God. your oh background? Yeah. I mean, you had a you just had a normal you went to public schools and yeah maybe that's one reason. But <laughs> you you had a politically active Pro,
1: family, progressive family progressive for family. sure, right? I, I don't know. I, I suppose partly my education. Yeah. Um. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't thought very much about it, but I am very aware that I have a great deal of anger about these issues. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. Um, and I think I also have been aware for a good part of my life that that these issues are present in the minutiae of our daily interactions with each other as well as in the machinations of Washington or Moscow. Yeah. Or,
0: yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's just, it's, yeah, it's curious to me that some
1: people care and some people don't. And Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea what makes people care and what makes people not care. <laughs> but the one thing that I do want to insist on, and I've said this before and I'll keep saying it, is that all of this is important because it's about how I or you or anyone else has to live one's daily life. Mm-hmm. In other words, all these theories are are um, are just that there are things that intellectuals play with but the problem is how do i live my daily life how do i justify what i do when i get up in the morning yeah how do i treat my children and my grandchildren and so forth? Yep. that's where it has to be considered and that's very different from the local versus universal idea right it's not it's not that we act locally in order right, right. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this this is this is local in, in my in my kitchen and my bedroom and uh-huh. my, uh-huh. my in my dining room do yeah. I lock my door or do I leave my door open right. so that the stranger can walk in? That's uh, you know in, in my lifetime, here where I live, there was a period when you didn't lock your door.-. Uh-huh. Now you do. right. To me, that's a greater sign of a change in our society yeah. um, than almost any I can think of. Yeah.
0: All right, well, I think that's a good place to just to end this one. Thanks. See you next time. Maybe. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Shareable World. To find out more about this podcast, visit us at ashareableworld.com.